From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we learn why there's been a recent uptick in bird flu cases and how it affects poultry owners and consumers. Then we'll learn about Kwanzaa and what makes the holiday so important for Milwaukeeans. We do need to say, in spite of all of the obstacles, we are here. We are here and we are getting stronger. Then we'll speak with local poet Brian Cherry about how writing is a daily exercise, even if the finished work doesn't come from it. Writing is joyful for me. <laughs> it's like a meditative uh, state that imbues beauty upon the rest of my life. But it also helps explain my life in more clarity sometimes, which is a really cool thing that could happen. Plus, we'll have the latest episode of our Live at Lake Effect music series featuring Daniel Rodriguez. All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. After a year-long pause, highly contagious avian influenza is back here in Wisconsin. The State Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection first confirmed the virus in a small backyard flock in Taylor County on November 17th. The DATCP has since confirmed five more cases spreading across Barron and Trempolo County. To learn more about the bird flu's return to the state, Lake Effect's excret Nunez is joined by Wisconsin State Veterinarian Dr. Darlene Conkel. Why have these cases started popping up again? Well, we're seeing kind of a fall bump in cases around the country. This virus was first detected in North America back in December of 2021, and most of the cases in North America and in the United States started happening in spring of 2022. And Wisconsin also had cases then in spring of 2022 and again in fall. And then you're right, we had a year in between 2022 and now where we did not see any additional cases in domestic poultry at all. And so since November, we've now seen six. And it does seem to correlate with the fall migration season, migrating waterfowl as they move back through areas in the Arctic that are their breeding grounds and back through North America on their way south. They stop to rest and to, to eat in these various areas around wetlands, and that's when we start to see more cases. Understood. So is it surprising to see the virus affecting flocks again after that year-long lull? Not necessarily surprising. We did know that that virus, which is an H5N1, it's just a kind of a terminology for naming influenza viruses based on their surface protein. Like I said, that's been with us since late 2021. It never really left. We had a reduction in cases during the, the summer this past year, and we're fortunate to have no cases in at all uh, in 2023 until now, but it never really left across the country where we're still seeing sporadic detections here and there, seeing detections in wildlife, in wild birds. So we knew it was still around just at lower levels. And then when more birds are congregating because of migration, we started to see more. What makes this strain different or unique from other strains? Well, this is a highly pathogenic avian influenza strain, so it does affect birds really strongly. Usually sudden death is one of the first signs that you'll see, but advanced respiratory signs like sneezing and snicking in birds, lethargy, drop in egg production, 
low feed and water intake. And most of the time in domestic birds, it progresses pretty rapidly to death. So it is a highly pathogenic virus. Um, it is different from other viruses we've had in the past. We had a similar situation back in 2015 with the high path avian influenza virus. That was a different one. That one lasted for the early part of 2015, and then we didn't see it again. So this virus seems to have some staying power for whatever reason. It's got the capability to remain in the environment a little longer and continue affecting birds. So in the vast majority of cases in this current outbreak, each one of these detections that we're seeing across the country has been mostly an individual introduction from some kind of contact with the virus in the environment. We're not seeing much of what we call lateral spread, which is the virus spreading from farm to farm. Walk me through what happens when a case has been confirmed positive on someone's farm, for example. Well, first of all, we're asking our poultry owners to be really vigilant and look closely at their flocks to see any signs, to detect those early, and to report those to us as soon as they notice something unusual or report them to their veterinarian. So those early reports are really helpful to us because then we can arrange to have those samples tested at a veterinary diagnostic laboratory and have those tests expedited so that we get a fast answer on whether that flock does in fact have high path AI detected. So as soon as we get that initial detection in our office, we immediately quarantine that flock to prevent any birds from moving on or off. And we do work with the farm owner to depopulate any remaining birds uh, as humanely and as, as quickly as possible. We also work with the farmer and with our USDA counterparts to dispose of those birds in a way that eliminates the virus and also prevents any further spread. Mostly in Wisconsin and and in our upper Midwestern states, that disposal is accomplished through composting, which is an effective way to eliminate the virus and dispose of, of the carcasses. From there, there's a cleaning and disinfection step to further eliminate any virus that might be remaining on that premises. And eventually those flocks can restock with new birds once we've established that there's no more virus on the premises. We also set up what's called a control area within 10 kilometers around an infected flock. And we're looking for any other virus in that area. So we do what's called surveillance. We contact other poultry owners around those areas to make sure they're not seeing anything unusual in their flocks. Additional testing is done in the commercial flocks around that area until we have the infected premises at a stage of control where the virus has mostly been eliminated. And then that control area can be released as well. So we're looking pretty closely for additional virus once we have one infected flock. Definitely. A lot of measures are being, seems like they're being taken to address this issue. How long do you predict the strain of avian influenza will stick around? That uh, is a very good question. I don't have a crystal ball for that, unfortunately. Uh, and speaking with virologists and other colleagues in USDA and elsewhere, you know, this virus is still around. We're seeing a smaller rise in cases than we did during the highest number of cases back in spring of 2022. But it's still here and it's circulating throughout North and South America in detections in domestic and wild birds. So my thought is we'll be seeing it for a while yet. I don't have a good predictor to know how long. Knowing from what you know from previous years, will the winter have any effect on the spread of the disease? 
The virus itself can survive just fine in our winters. Uh, influenza viruses don't mind cold, wet conditions, which is basically winter in Wisconsin. So we could potentially see more cases over the winter. We tend to see the largest rises, though, that correspond to the migration season. So I would expect cases to drop off more in the dead of winter, but we still really want to remain vigilant because we certainly could get cases popping up really at any time of the year. Right. And you explained a little bit about what agriculture officials are doing to address the uptick in cases. I guess overall, what's the best practice to help mitigate the spread of bird flu? The best practice to mitigate the spread of bird flu is definitely biosecurity on poultry farms, no matter what their size. So the person that has a few birds in their backyard or their garage that they have for their own egg production up to, you know, large commercial flocks should all be practicing good biosecurity. And that's going to look different from farm to farm. But even the most basic measures can help, including people washing their hands before and after they handle poultry, using dedicated equipment and clothing when you're working with your poultry, training any employees on good biosecurity measures on the large commercial flocks that could be as extensive as having employees shower in and shower out before and after they're working with birds, making sure your birds are kept separate from other birds. And if you're introducing new ones, have an isolation period where you can monitor those new birds before you introduce those to the rest of your flock. And one of the most important things is to avoid any contact with environmental contamination. So keeping your birds separate from areas where wild birds can congregate, like ponds and and waterways and things like that. Well, that's definitely interesting that this kind of goes for both backyard flock owners to commercial flock owners. And so how might this recent outbreak affect consumers who purchase poultry products? Well, one of the most important things to remember is that poultry is safe to eat. They've cooked to the proper temperature and all the poultry designed for human consumption in the United States is inspected at the processing plants. There have been very few cases of human infections with this particular virus, which is good news. It doesn't seem to have much capability to infect humans or pass from from person to person at this point. Well, Dr. Conkel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing this important information. You're welcome. Pleased to talk with you today. Dr. Darlene Conkel is Wisconsin State Veterinarian under the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. She spoke with Lake Effects Excret Nunez. season is often dominated by Christmas celebrations, but that's just one of the many holidays people celebrate this time of year, like Kwanzaa, which starts December 26th. Over the past few decades, Kwanzaa has become near and dear to the heart of our Dig In contributor, Venus Williams. She's the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. Every month, she joins Like Effects Joy Powers to talk about gardening, food, and healthy cooking. This month, they explore the first fruits of Kwanzaa and the meaning of Kujichagalia. So the holidays are upon us, and uh, there's a lot of things that people are celebrating this time of year. Uh, but one that you are especially excited about is Kwanzaa. So we're going to dig in a little bit to the holiday of Kwanzaa and uh, really start with the origins of the holiday. 
Yes. Uh, Kwanzaa was first celebrated on December 26, 1966 in Los Angeles, California, um, by Dr. Um, Karenga. And he wanted a celebration of African-American families and community that really focused on who we have been, um, not just in, you know, in the world, but especially in this country related to food and culture, economics, politics, faith, and really wanted to create something that would bring families and the community and neighborhoods together to say, um, we, have, we have cause to celebrate our journey. For you as an urban farmer and for gardeners and growers in general, what makes Kwanzaa so significant? Well, the word Kwanzaa itself means first fruits. It is a key Swahili or Swahili word. And Swahili is the most um, common language spoken throughout the African nation. And so he chose that language in particular because it was one that lots of people can relate to. And so when you talk about first fruits, you're talking about the harvest. Um, Kwanzaa is a time to look back on the year, the past year, and to see what it is that your family and your community has accomplished. What are your first fruits? What is it that you need to pause and say, job well done? Now, uh, we'll we'll get into kind of the first fruits of Milwaukee in just a bit. But one term that uh, comes from Kwanzaa that, or no, I shouldn't say comes from Kwanzaa, but is a part of Kwanzaa that I think Milwaukeeans will actually be familiar with through you is uh, Kuji Chagalia. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so Kuji Chagalia is the second principle of Kwanzaa, the, the Naguzo Naguzo Saba, I can say that, um, the seven principles of Kwanzaa, it takes a word each day and you focus on that particular principle and you reflect on how the community and your family or you yourself have lived into that principle. So Kujichakalia means self-determination, um, to define ourselves, to name ourselves, to create a path for ourselves. People tease me all the time because, yes, it is the longest Kwanzaa principle name. Yes, it is the most difficult one to pronounce, um, but we are determined to do that. And so Kujichakalia has been at work for me personally in my life, even before I knew about Kwanzaa. So as I learned about the holiday, and we have been celebrating the holiday as a family for at least 30 years, um, Kujichakalia is a very special day for me. Thus, we named the Kujichakalia Lutheran Center and then the Kujichakalia Producers Cooperative that is inside of the Sherman Phoenix. For anyone who has not been to the cooperative, uh, it is just a really cute spot. And also, there is so much great stuff that you can find there from uh, local growers, from local people in, in general, makers in general. Now, as we look at Kwanzaa, why is this an important holiday for Milwaukee in particular? Most often when we are having conversations about urban Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee, and our African-American communities, the things that make the news are the things that we don't need to celebrate. So we hear about the tragedy and we don't lift up the joy. 
Milwaukee has done an incredible job, especially since the pandemic, of encouraging people to dream, to dream about their lives, to dream about business in particular. We all had the opportunity to pause in 2020, and so many Black businesses have been birthed in Milwaukee um, since that time. And so this year for Kujichakalia Day, we are really going to focus on celebrating Black businesses, not just the Black businesses at the Sherman Phoenix, but so many of the businesses that are doing incredible jobs of just living into their dreams throughout the city of Milwaukee. So as a celebration of first fruits, one might imagine there is a lot of food that is part of the celebration of Kwanzaa. What are some of the things that you're excited to eat this year? Everyone who comes to our home throughout the Kwanzaa holiday, which is December 26th, through January 1st, and it ends, January 1st is the feast, is the Kwanzaa feast. But throughout all of those days, I normally have my African peanut stew available um, with overflowing with the greens from the garden, sweet potatoes from the garden. I like to add black eyed peas in that stew, carrots from the garden, um, all of these things that I save and freeze, um, or like I said, I'm still digging up um, for the holiday. I also like to make some of the cultural foods that I grew up with that are very special for me. So the corn pudding, um, and John, which again is, you know, the rice and the black eyed peas, and always some corn fritters, Uh, some salmon croquettes. These are some of the things. And of course, a big old pot of greens. Of course. What what would you say is your favorite Kwanzaa dish? It has to be the African peanut stew. That is my favorite, favorite, favorite of all. Now, as you look back at uh, the year that has been 2023, what are the first fruits that you'll be reflecting on? As an urban farmer and as a leader in food systems within the city of Milwaukee, I am really going to celebrate how the Fondy Food Center and Alice's Garden Urban Farm has nourished families and communities, how well we fed one another throughout the growing season. And because of the warmth of the growing season right now, we are still literally harvesting um, vegetables and, you know, greens and carrots and potatoes and all of these things that the season has not quite taken away from us yet. Personally, I also want to celebrate perseverance and endurance, and I'm going to harvest um, joy. You know, there has been so much to be burdened by for me personally, and even again in the city of Milwaukee. But let's harvest some joy this season. And so on December 27th at the Sherman Phoenix, you know, we're going to start at noon and we're going to go through 7 p.m. And we are going to be a place of joy where you can come and experience music and dance and games and workshops and conversations Um, Because we do need to say, in spite of all of the obstacles, we are here 
we are here and we are getting stronger. For sure. Now, as we look at December, kind of cozy reading, kind of uh, taking a moment to sit down with a good book, what are you picking up? So I'm actually going to suggest a couple of Kwanzaa books, because a lot of people don't celebrate Kwanzaa, even within the African-American community. So I suggest The Complete Kwanzaa Celebrating Our Cultural Harvest. It's by Dorothy Winbush Riley. My copy is quite old and quite used. And another Kwanzaa book favorite is A Kwanzaa Keepsake by Jessica B. Harris. These are some books that you can dive into as you prepare for 2024 and all of the goodness that is yet to come. All right. Well, Venus, thank you so much for joining us once again here on Lake Effect uh, and for joining us all year round. Thank you for having me. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers, and you can find their previous dig-in conversations at wuwm.com. Coming up later in the show, we have the latest episode of our Live at Lake Effect series, featuring musician Daniel Rodriguez. A founding member of the band Elephant Revival, he now focuses on folk and acoustic music. I think my sweet spot is really just authentically giving what it is I'm writing to, if it's a live show, I'm authentically playing that to a community event and authentically being myself. But first, we'll have a conversation and some readings from local poet Brian Cherry. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The coronavirus is something that remains present in our lives, but we can all recall our own experiences and feelings of what we collectively went through during the height of the COVID 19 pandemic. For Brian Cherry, writing every day helped him process what he was going through personally. Cherry is a lifelong Milwaukeean, musician, and a poet. He has a new book of poetry called Death Moan, which he views as a meditation on how death tugs at us from many angles. It was written during the height of the pandemic. He joins me now to share more about his work and to read a few of the poems from this collection. Brian Cherry, welcome to Lake Effect. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're a true local, born and raised here in Milwaukee, and I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but the feel of this place, this city, comes through in your poetry book. How do you feel that your hometown has shaped your writing, at least for this most recent work? Well, yeah, I've been here since I was born, you know, born in St. Joseph's Hospital. And, you know, I feel like it's a constantly evolving city. And in ways, it's kind of at war with itself, but it is evolving. And I, I just love it. The people are beautiful and kind and generous. So it's been good to me. That warring sensibility does come through your book, but also like the good parts. And the neutral parts, right? Yeah, thank you. I, I think, like, I want to be the most realistic poet I can be and just, you know, talk about what's actually happening. And so the mundane stuff is part of it, you know. Absolutely. I'm wondering, can you talk about the cover of Death Moan as well? I feel like there's many street corners here in Milwaukee that look similar to it. So share why this place uh, suited the cover for your poem book. 
Yeah, I was uh, having a, a drink with a poem friend of mine, and we walked out, and I just saw this, and I actually, I actually took that photo, and it just like struck me like the the darkness and the light there, and the the blue lights on the trees in the back. It just you know the the struggle between darkness and light is just kind of inherent in the picture. So the title of your poetry book is called Death Moan. And while some people may interpret that as a negative thing or a negative light, I kind of look at it as kind of what we've been talking about as a neutral, as a natural process, especially as I continue to read the poems. What does death moan mean to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a transitional thing, which I think is super important right now. I think we're all kind of, for the last couple of years, going through transitional thing in one way or another. And it's not a to me either it's not a it's not a bad thing or a good thing it just kind of is a part of it and it's worth exploring and talking about so speaking of this feeling of just observing being part of this natural process can you read your poem it's called on a boat july 23rd 2021 yeah on a boat july 23rd 2021 you will foresee the moon in burst blood Then you will see the moon in full blood bloom. You will understand the gloom, yet you will still have no way to adjust crimson sadness. You will birth thoughts and pine for the way it never was for us humans. Those revelers on the party boat will not will themselves to see that the pregnant red orb is due, due to raging wildfires thousands of miles to the west. The earth is death. It would feel good to say that out loud on a party boat where the band is playing, on a party boat where no one is listening to you. It will be beautiful. It will be beautiful. Thank you for that. That's so much better when you read it versus when I'm reading it in my head. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, and on that kind of note, I want to talk about perspective for a moment. And most of these poems in Death Moan are kind of observations, kind of like a grand narrator, right? And I'm wondering about your writing process. What's it like when you're either thinking about a topic or what style you want to write about it? How how do you just get into this zone? Well, um... You know, when it's good, like ideas, like an idea just kind of casually happen. Like uh, there's a poem in there about the Minnesota uprising, Minneapolis uprising and stuff. And it starts out, shoe sir is burning, I'm flexing out front. And that's literally from a picture I saw, you know, of a guy doing that. And so that just tumbled from that. And when it's happening good, it just happens really fast, like lightning in a lot of ways. When it's bad, I just try and write every day still, you know, just try and even if it's just a grocery list or something. You know? so. <laughs> With changing perspectives throughout this book, I'd love for you to read next a poem called For the Edification of My Daughter. Uh, so I have a four-year-old daughter. Her name is Tessa. I wouldn't say she's the greatest thing in the world, but I have a son as well who's equally as awesome. So, <laughs> uh, But this is about her. For the edification of my daughter. Human, it survives in small blossoms, reticent elegy, all wound up in expectations and endings, quivering bow to continual cello strings, ineffable remains of a charred yet defiant translucent universe, 
a vessel caught on a continuance of an ever-connecting confluence, cloud cluster of iridescent stars, which have not been reduced in their somatic cloth, cries out like wolves who have placed oracles in stone bellies, existence belying the false natures, her holding on always like double knots banded across the expanse until it is time to let go. Thank you. With these poems in your book, they're, some of them are directly tied to a certain date, as you mentioned, uh, events, photos you see of things happening. Can you share more about what was happening in your life and the perspective you had when you were writing these poems that are in Death Moan? Are they all from a certain period of time, or do you like to save poems from the past and, and save them for a collection? No, usually they come out together. Um, and these poems came, started with the first poem in the book, was the first poem that I wrote. So that was like June of 2020. And up through like, I would say 2022 or so is when I was writing them. It's like I was becoming a stay-at-home dad, which was a huge transition in, in a lot of different ways, you know? And like, just thinking about, it felt like I was, like everybody else, becoming really insular and, you know, hermit-like and dealing with being a father 24-7, it all just kind of spun out into into these poems coming from different places, you know? What did you learn about yourself as you transitioned to full-time stay-at-home dad? Uh, I think, I feel like humans are made for transitions. Just like, you know, like it, they, they come fast and even sometimes you don't even notice you're going through a transition when you're going through them. And I don't know that I necessarily even knew that this was a collection of poems until like the final poem was written, you know? So yeah, it's just interesting. It seems like you still made time to prioritize writing though, right? Like whether it's just something you need to do daily, whether, and like you said, you didn't know this was going to be a collection, but you still found time for this when you were parenting in such a hard time. Writing is joyful for me. (laughs) It's like a meditative uh, state that, imbues beauty upon the rest of my life and it it helps me in two parts it helps imbues beauty but it also helps explain my life in more clarity sometimes which is a really cool thing that can happen i'd love to hear another poem would you mind reading for us a title called on the 32nd state in 2020 yeah uh so i'll just say that this came out of uh one of my heroes is terrence hayes and he wrote uh, Sonnets every day for like a year or so. And he came out with Sonnets for my past and future assassins. So this is a poem. I started writing Sonnets because of that. I had never really tried. And this is a poem that came out of that. I call it like a crack sonnet or an American sonnet. On the 32nd state in 2020. Stars are vague tonight. Many mother portals open. Wild tongues reach for high flames. Thelonious monk plays brilliant corners on a zephyr. The people lock arms. The ritual calls for blood. Blood where the meaning of blessing is derived. Blessed mother words. Halogen halo streetlights insist. Halo halogen light street fight in the dark. Tattered strands of legitimate conclusions. Culminations of deified violence. Cataclystic shifting bedrock. Thank you. 
Two central tenants in your life are listening and love. Can you share more about why they're important to you and how they shape you, not just in your writing, but in your everyday? Yeah. I, I don't know. Listening to me is like, I love a lot of like Buddhist thought about the subject. It's like, if you're listening, you're being aware. And if you can be aware enough, Anybody can write poems if they can just get aware enough. It's not it's not a secret superpower that I have, you know. It's just that I notice when people say funny things or cool things, and I just write them down every time, you know. So it's like I'm not I'm not even the source of all this material. You know? <laughs> well, do you find that helps kind of break down barriers to poetry and make it more accessible? Because it's intimidating often. It is, but I I oftentimes when I'm when I'm out and about, I'll make a stranger, a new person I met, like write a poem with me. Just like I write two lines, they write two lines, and we go back and forth. And it's like it does make it more accessible to think of it that way. I love that. How do you find your relationship to writing poetry compared to creating music? You're also a musician. Yeah. And it's funny because my band is spelled B R Y A N, and I'm B R Y O N for the poetry thing. So it's like it's two different distinct personalities, you know? But the creation of music is a beautiful thing, too. It's, it's Music is sacred in a lot of ways, and in most societies it is. Um, so there's something that you can touch there that's, I, it's hard to, that I've hardly seen in other art. But then poetry does the same thing just from a different angle. You know, it's like it allows you to, allows me at least, to be expansive in my thought and not as tied to myself as I could be. Do you like to keep them in two separate lanes or do they intermingle in your life? No, they're intermingling now because it's like... Out of necessity? Point, everybody, <laughs> out of necessity and everybody already knows that it's the same person. So yeah. Like... <laughs> so, Brian, I've loved talking to you, learning more about your process. Before yeah. we wrap up, can you leave us with one more poem? Yeah, it's called Voltaic Organisms, or I don't give a... Once you were in the air... After the jump on trampoline, then second bounce becomes mere inevitability. The wind this day, this mid-morning, 11.32 a.m., five and three-quarters seconds to 11.33 a.m., is a performance vehicle doing its wind work with little to no effort, it seems. 11.33 is a special number, but it never gets to passing how any imaginary thing could be more special than another imaginary thing, and how humans immersed in limited periscope understanding could discern that to be true. Those humans always placing atoms in collider at CERN so that other collections of atoms can commence studying the collider atoms to find out how these atom battlefields came to begin in this self-referential experience. Like a bag of trap house money, we atoms are stashed and cinematically sullied, but we still spiritually suckle at the indiscernible teat. Decide on your emergency contact. Death is here, but it is like a meme of which you want to steal its clever image, but then your social media refreshes as existence slides you one more nearly imperceivable fuck you. Yet for now, death is done, or at least quiet, the oven has gone ding. All of you are now leavened above the trance-like trampoline. That is, all of you are leavened from the dead things. 
Previously dead atoms now thrive, now sending signals that bodies must feed off the ecstatic liturgy of soon to be dead atoms. This abattoir really is beautiful here in the spring with the blossoms bending in unintended fragrant mannerisms like machine created effigies in the warming sun. The atoms of blood now curly cued down, a logically placed drain engraved and engorged in the bottom of sloped killing floor. And so that is gravity. That is gravity. We are gravity. Brian, thank you so much for talking with me today and for sharing your work. Oh, thanks for having me. It really means a lot. Brian Cherry is a local poet and musician. His new book of poetry is called Death Moan. It's published by Willow Brooks and is available at the Woodlawn Pattern and Lion's Tooth bookstores here in Milwaukee. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with Daniel Rodriguez for our latest episode of Live at Lake Effect. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together, along with Visionary Studios, to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with the band airing exclusively on Lake Effect. Today we have singer-songwriter Daniel Rodriguez. Joining him at the surf shop are Milwaukee's own Darren Garvey on the drums and vocals, Justin Mazur on electric guitar, and Zachary Jackson on bass and vocals. Here's Daniel Rodriguez and his band performing Brother John. Well, Brother John, he got a hard shell But that music moves him so He's got the armor of a warrior a soldier wounded long ago But I've seen as those tears fall When that music's sweet and low Oh, Brother John, Brother John Oh, Brother John, Brother John Oh, Brother John, Brother John Brother John, Brother John How he's quick with his words And how his salt in his prose But I've seen as those goosebumps Are taking over his soul oh, Brother John, Brother John Brother John, Brother John Oh, Brother John, Brother John 
Brother John, Brother John. Lay resolve when he hears a lonesome song, as if there wasn't none at all. Ooh, Brother John, he's got the armor of a warrior, a soldier wounded long ago. I've seen as those tears fall When that music's sweet and low oh, Brother John, Brother John 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 This is Audrey Nowakowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. Today we're here over Zoom instead of at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. Unfortunately in radio, sometimes you run into technical difficulties and our original interview tape was corrupted. But good news is Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep, my fellow Live at Lake Effect co-producer, is here with me virtually to do this again and still bring you this interview. Hey, Trapper. Live from my basement. Hello, Audrey. We are here with a very talented musician from uh, out west. His name is Daniel Rodriguez, and he performed at the Lake Effect Surf Shop with his band, uh, Talented Group. And before we go any further, Daniel, do you recall the names of the three fabulous musicians that you graced our surf shop with? Sure do. Milwaukee's own Darren Garvey was on drums and, and beautiful vocal harmonies, and then Justin Mazer was on electric guitar and we put a, a vocal mic in front of him to make him feel comfy, but he rarely says anything into it. And then uh, Zach Jackson was on bass and uh, he, he does that high third part harmony and some good, some good. Bass really good. So I think that's who we had there. If I'm not you mistaken. sure did. Yeah. And we interview musicians from all over the country on this show. And in many ways, your music has been inspired by Colorado. Can you talk about sort of that kind of cool and casual Colorado vibe that is present in some of your music? Yeah, I think it's mostly comes from when I first came out there to Colorado, desiring to be a professional musician. I moved up to this small little town called Nederland, Colorado, which is 8,500 feet up uh, above Boulder. And a lot of the local professional musicians lived up there because of this beautiful isolated community. And a lot of my chops and my ambitions came from 
all the picks that they would have. It's like every night there was there was a party at Vince Herman's house from Leftover Salmon or someone from String Cheese or Yonder Mountain String Band. And so I kind of grew up as a musician in those at those parties, kind of like, oh, I got to keep up with these dudes. I know what that's like, because in Milwaukee, I was in a class at UWM called The Art of Songwriting by a professor named Dr. Martin Jack Rosenboom. And we had a party every Thursday. And it was in our class where we would all bring the song that we had worked on that week. And I wrote, and I wrote like half my first album in that class. And then of course, outside the class in what you call picks, what in Milwaukee we call get a 30 pack of PBR and party. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt your music really has that quality to me. That's just kind of like, like I said before, cool, casual, Colorado, easy, easy listening, but still very lyrical and introspective. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's my character. I should, I want to start, I want to start screaming in the microphone if I can figure out how to, how to do that. <laughs> well, and I was going to ask, uh, going up to a remote town, do you consider yourself more introverted and find that hanging with musicians in a small Colorado town is the best part of being a musician? And then how do you balance that with being on the road and performing? Yeah, I think that's kind of part of it is like going out on the road and being very socially active. And, um, you know, from the moment you get up to the moment you lay your head down, it's just a lot of making sure things that everything's okay and everybody's okay. And, you know, selling merch and talking to the audience and this and that. And then when you get home, it's kind of like if you're in a sort of isolated community, it, it just sort of caters to that hunker down feeling. Mm -hmm. And you toured a lot with a band called Elephant Revival that you started and wrote many of their most beautiful tunes. And I opened for y'all at Turner Hall Ballroom. And I've also had the opportunity to um, see and perform with you on stages all over America with your your band now under your own name. And it was wild seeing Elephant Revival play live because it was like this traveling ensemble and you touched everything from Celtic music to bluegrass music to folk music, like murder ballads, um, all of that music. So can you talk a little bit about your experiences with that band and how that carried into what you're doing now as Daniel Rodriguez under your own name. Yeah. Uh, Elephant revival, you know, when we first started the band, it was five people and we were all coming from different parts of the country. Like I grew up in Connecticut and my father lived in New Mexico. So I was introduced to the West, but I was mostly a Connecticut fella and I, grew up playing in the reggae band you know so i had like the reggae awesome. the okay. reggae chops and then okay uh, uh the other daniel in the band he was from chicago and somehow got introduced to old-timey music so he had like the smashing pumpkins slash oh what's this old-timey music and then bridget was the only colorado native and she grew up in like texas fiddle contests and then <laughs> Sage and Bonnie grew up in Oklahoma, so they had that red dirt kind of in their blood. So it was just really like a true melting pot of it really was music. I mean, that is beautiful. 
Yeah. So somehow we created the sound that was, you know, if if something wasn't completely distinct, it was just that melding of all all those things. Uh, and then now uh, my solo thing is just, I guess it's sort of taking all those influences ever since I was little and through Elephant Revival um, up until now. It's kind of like isolating, isolating that. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a bit about how you've isolated what has worked best for you? Your music now, it has elements of folk, bluegrass, Cajun, country blues. It's kind of a, like we were talking about, a bit of a patchwork of traditional American sounds. How do you find what you're doing now and your past music experience shaping what you do today? What have you found to be your sweet spot? Um, I think my sweet spot is really just authentically giving what it is I'm writing to. If it's a live show, I'm authentically playing that to a community event and authentically being myself. And then, you know, in the, in the recording aspect, it's it's that as well. It's like, okay, you're in front of these microphones. I want to tap into the original essence of how and what I wrote this and, and put that down for all of time. But I think I'm still ever discovering that sweet spot. You know, like, I, I don't know if I've officially found my sound yet. Daniel, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, has a pretty good song called When I Paint My Masterpiece. And when he was interviewed once, he said, the interviewer said, well, what happens if you do paint your masterpiece? And Dylan said, you paint another. <laughs> it's like that, that never ending quest. That is the most beautiful thing about making music, being a performer is that like ever evolving and changing nature of it. And I like, I see that in your music and how you continue to evolve that. And so good work. Thank you. Yeah, I think you know playing an elephant revival we were mostly like an acoustic ensemble so jumping out of that gate i was like i want to play with a rock band because i had done the acoustic thing for so long and you know now after like many years of doing the the rock thing i'm, I'm like oh i want to i want to go back into the acoustic thing a little bit you know yeah man yeah well, your acoustic thing has been great, and it was a fantastic session at the surf shop. And we want to thank you again so much for sharing your music with us and for speaking with us today. Oh, yeah. Let's do it again. Cheers. Come on in. That was Daniel Rodriguez joining us for Live at Lake Effect. Be sure to head to WUWM.com and our YouTube and social media channels to see him and the band performing in the Lake Effect surf shop. That video is done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect. Sound engineering is done by WUWM's Jason Reby. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect are released monthly. And be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Dead Horses, Reina, Chicken Wire Empire, Abby Jean, and more. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Thanks for joining us today and tune in again tomorrow at noon for Lake Effect right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.